Friday evening, Zach and, and Barbara took, and Michael, it was actually Michael's idea, took uh, Barbara and me to the Riverside Cafe for um, one of the best cheeseburgers in all the world, they say. And uh, we had a nice table and could look out through the windows under the bridge and see the sun going down, and uh, it really was, it was a delightful time. But as I mentioned this morning, as, the, as we got sort of deeper and deeper into the evening, and as darkness began to engulf and enfold and enshroud everything, it's like the evening creatures came out, you know. And I don't, I don't mean at all to be disparaging or unkind, uh, because uh, I am them. I mean, I trust you know that, and we know that about one another. Uh, and it's really not an us-them sort of a thing. It, it, uh, it is, I, as I was thinking about it, Barbara and I even talked about it a little bit, it is precisely that sort of place where I think we would have found Jesus if we had, uh, if we had been privileged to have lived in his day. He would have been out with folk, with people, loving them, caring for them, praying for them, seeking to minister to them. So it was a good, it was a good place to be. And um, there was a fellow there, uh, an, older, an older gentleman, well, pro- probably not older, actually, probably <laughs> probably about my age, I, you know. I don't know, he just happened to have white hair, I, but yeah. But uh, anyway, he had, a, he had a cross around his neck. You know, he was wearing a, a, a kind of a choker thing with a cross around his neck. And, um, and I really wanted to ask him, what is what is the why do you wear the cross? You know what is what does the cross mean to you? Why why do you do that? Um, I didn't. I assume he lives around here. Maybe I'll I'll have the chance. I mean I'll I'll remember what he looks like, and maybe I'll get the chance to speak to him again and ask him that question. But the cross, like like words, really in our culture, many words, the cross. Has, has really lost its, some of its distinctive uh, content. It, it's, it's lost its distinctiveness. It's become an ornament. It's become a piece of jewelry, uh, a thing that, that anybody could wear on a shirt or uh, around his or her neck as a piece of ornamentation, um, like words. Words can lose their meaning. I, I think the word awesome has lost its meaning. You know, I mean, we all use it. We all say, oh, that was awesome. Or if you're 18, 20, 22, you say that was totally awesome. Um, awe is what people like Isaiah and Habakkuk and Daniel and John experienced when the curtain was torn, and they were able to peer beyond the veil of this material world into the very presence of God and see God in all of his radiance and splendor and glory. I mean, they, that was awesome. You know, um, an automobile is not awesome. A band is not awesome. A film is not awesome. God is awesome. But, you know, words sort of lose their distinctiveness and, and their uniqueness. And, and I think the cross has, has sort of lost its, 
distinctiveness. It, it, if you'd lived a couple thousand years ago, uh, the cross meant something. And, if, and it was a mark of identification. If you were associated with the cross, you know, you were associated with an implement for execution. You were, you were associated with something that was reserved not for Roman citizens to be executed on, but for non-Romans to be executed on. It was, it was for aliens. It was for strangers. It was for the marginalized. It was for criminals. It was for the disreputable. It wasn't for people of reputation and the elite. It wasn't a piece of ornamentation. Uh, it was scandalous. That's the word that the New Testament uses with respect to the cross. And so to be associated with the cross was to be associated with something scandalous. But for the Christian, the cross isn't scandalous, it's a glory. That's what Paul preaches to the Corinthians and then writes to the Corinthians. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To both, it's a scandal, the cross is. But to the Christian, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the cross uh, is everything for the Christian. And what you've got in, in Matthew 27, obviously, is a narrative of the execution of Jesus, the last little portion of that whole narrative uh, where Jesus died. And, and you know, you, you, you want to understand exactly what's going on there, what's happening at the cross, this thing that becomes so precious that for Paul is the wisdom of God and the power of God, that for Christians of the first couple of centuries after the death and resurrection of Jesus, they were willing, in fact, desirous of being associated with. What is it about the cross? Now, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, okay? I, I, Zach said he was preaching to the choir earlier. Uh, I'm, I'm really preaching to the choir um, here now. I, I know you have uh, some understanding of what the cross is all about. But I want to I give you my shot at it. I want to I share with you some of what I see in the cross and hope that uh, it will be an encouragement to you. The cross needs to be set up, if you will. The death of Christ needs to be set up. And the whole of the Old Testament sets up the cross for us. Why the cross becomes necessary and what it is that God does at the cross. Look uh, back, if you would, with me to Exodus chapter 34 and um, verses 6 and 7. Let me suggest to you that these verses, um, as clearly as any verses in the Old Testament, set up the cross. Uh, serve as a sort of a piece of this puzzle that gets put together through the Old Testament that prepares us for the cross. I think these two verses are riveting, and I'll just encourage you to, to think about that. Um, the setting is this. Moses 
has been on the mountain. He came down from the mountain when he and Moses, when Moses is coming down from the mountain with Joshua, you know, they hear the sound of uh, something in the camp. And, and Joshua says, I think that's the sound of, you know, a military celebration, you know, like, well, we've been away up on the mountain for these 40 days and 40 nights. The, the people have gathered themselves and rallied themselves and they've, they've gone out to fight against the, the enemies of the Lord. And, and Moses says, nah, check your earring aid, Joshua. It's not the sound of a military triumph in the camp. It's the sound of idolatry and harlotry and unfaithfulness and unbelief. And so Moses coming down from the mountain, uh, standing at some, probably some elevated place. This is Cecil B. DeMille stuff. You know, this is the stuff of great film. Takes the two tablets upon which the law had been written and he smashes them to the ground, uh, symbolizing God's displeasure with the people and the possibility that this marriage that I referred to this morning that God had initiated with Israel was off and the bride was no longer going to be the bride and the husband was no longer going to be the husband but it was called off well Moses intercedes um, and asks God to relent and then at the end of his prayer um, asks God to show him his glory and God says well I I can't do that no one can see my face and live, and then God says that He will allow a portion of God's glory to pass by. And then in this passage, uh, God gives uh, a sort of an elaboration of His glory, a description of His glory um, in, in a name. Uh, the name, the Lord, gets expanded. Verses 6 and 7. So the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. You remember Exodus 3 when Moses first heard the voice of God and God revealed himself to Moses and gave him that name, I am who I am, I will be what I will be. I'm the self-existing, self-defining, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. We'll hear that name gets exegeted, if you will. It gets unpacked, if you will. That name is like, a, is like a present under the tree. And here God is opening the present for Moses to show him a bit more of what is in that name. What does that name mean? Who is the Lord, the Lord who has passed before Moses, who is glorious beyond description? Well, he is these things. He is a merciful God gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But, don't you hate that word? Don't you hate it? I mean, haven't you used it as parents when you talk to your kids, you know? You say, you know, I really this and I really that and I really like this and I so appreciate it. But, 
And then, and then the other shoe drops. And the kid's thinking, I thought I was okay. I'm realizing now I'm in trouble. Something happened. I did something. Things are not going to go well. I, you know, you hate that word on the one hand. And, and frankly, I hate it in this passage. If a period came after the word sin, right? Who is God? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, period. Wouldn't life be good? But, there's a but. But, who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Oh, you know, it's like the sun was shining and then the clouds just covered up the sun and everything got dark. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generations. Isn't that what happened with our original father? Isn't that what happened when Adam first sinned? When Eve and Adam conspired together to live contrary to the purpose of God, the will of God, the desire of God, in defiance of the rule and reign of God? Hasn't that continued to happen, cascading down across the centuries to this very day, this very moment? It's because sin has real consequences. And and you see here, you've got... You've got two things going on. And the question is, how, how do you resolve these two things? Which is it that God is going to be? Do you see that? You're impaled on the horns of a dilemma here. Will God be loving and merciful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, quick to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin? Or will he by no means clear the guilty? If I'm, if I'm Moses and I'm hearing this, this stops me in my tracks. Why? Because I know I'm guilty. And because I know the whole nation is guilty. The whole nation has just been engaged in rebellion against God, in harlotry, in idolatry, in disbelief, prostituting themselves with other gods who are not true gods. You see what I'm saying? If I hear God say the first part of this stuff, but then he goes on to the second part, it stops me in my tracks because I am toast. I know what I deserve. I know what I want, but I know what I deserve. See, I don't think there's another passage in the whole of Scripture that better sets up the need of the cross, than this passage. How does this tension get resolved? This disposition, this inclination in God to be loving, being disposed to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but this necessity in God to be just and to maintain His justice and to punish the guilty. How does it get resolved? Well, you know that it gets resolved 
in the cross. And as I said, the whole of the Old Testament in little bits and pieces is preparation for the resolution of this tension, this tension between the disposition of God, the inclination, if you will, in the heart of God, in the soul of God to forgive, but the necessity in God to be just. See, God, forgiveness doesn't work for God the way it works for us. Can I put it that way? If you offend me, if you hurt me, if I'm doing the right thing, I say, I forgive you, but I don't require anything of you. Forgiveness doesn't work that way with God. When there is a violation of the law, when there is a wrong done, there is a penalty that has to be paid. And it is not justice in God for God simply to say, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. Let them go on about their business and do their thing. When the law is violated, there is a just recompense required. There is a payment commensurate with the crime that must be paid. So you see the tension here? There is this disposition, this inclination in God to be forgiving, to be merciful, to be compassionate. There is this necessity in God, which is also the disposition of his soul, if you will. There is this necessity in God to be just. And so the whole of the rest of the Old Testament sets us up and prepares us for the cross and the resolution of this tension. You see it? And I'm just going to skate through really quickly some very familiar passages just to remind you, again, of little pieces of this puzzle that God, through the centuries, began to assemble and put together, the end of which is the cross, the presentation of the cross. Think, for example, of Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. The first, you've got to back up a little bit uh, in the book of Exodus. But think, think, for example, of Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. Uh, what happened in the days leading up to the Passover? If you look at Exodus 12, the first 11 verses, um, the Lord, through Moses, um, tells all of the households to bring a lamb into the household on the 10th day of the month. And for the next five days, this lamb will live in the household with the family. It's a spotless lamb without blemish, without imperfection. So for... Five days until the 14th day, if my math is right, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, five days, 10 through 14 inclusive. For five days, this spotless, cuddly, warm, sweet little lamb lives in the household, brought into the household, among the family members. I wonder what Catherine, what do you think Catherine would do? What do you think Tyler would do with a little lamb brought into the household? You know what they do. Their hearts grow attached, don't they? Just like that. Warm, cuddly, sweet, clean, innocent. Five days the lamb is in the household. And then what happens on the 14th day? The father takes the lamb away from the household outside and slaughters it, kills it. And then in verses 21 and following, you know the story. The blood 
that is taken from the lamb is spread across the doorposts and the lintel of that household. Uh, And then when the angel of death comes over the whole of the land on the Passover night, the angel of death, the angel of judgment. See, this is the holy, just, and righteous God exacting this just recompense, this payment that is required where there is the violation of the law. The angel of death passes over the whole of the land and exacts that recompense from every family. The firstborn of every family dies as the angel of death passes over the land. Every family except those families where another has died, where blood has been shed, so that everyone in that household is spared that judgment. The very clear uh, teachings uh, are that it will be costly for there to be a resolution of this tension between God's disposition to be forgiving and his requirement to be just. It will be costly. It will cost someone dearly. It will cost a life for lives to be spared. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. It's another, gosh, it's just such a great piece of drama in the life of the nation. Uh, there's a series of acts that occur on the Day of Atonement. The high priest is the one who takes the lead with all of this. Uh, If you look at Leviticus 16, the first thing that the high priest has to do is take a bath, has to cleanse himself, and then has to clothe himself with these priestly garments, these linens. But then he has to take uh, a, a bull and make a sacrifice of a bull Uh, for himself, and then another bull is made as a sacrifice for his family, life given for life, life given for lives. And then two goats are selected. Uh, And the same sort of thing happens with the first goat. The goat is slaughtered, and the blood of that goat is taken into the holy place and is sprinkled on the four corners of, of the Ark of the Covenant, a life given for lives. And then after that, the priest does this very dramatic thing, this incredibly dramatic thing. The priest comes out in view of the whole nation and takes the second goat and places his hands upon the head of the second goat and confesses the sins of the people. If you go back to Leviticus 4, you'll see a series of circumstances in which someone takes a living animal that is to serve as a sacrifice, but before that living animal is sacrificed, the one making the sacrifice places his hands upon the head of that sacrifice and confesses his sin. Sometimes it's a tribal leader, a leader in the congregation, or an individual, or a priest for a group, a wider group, or the whole community. And what's being uh, played out, what's... What's being represented there? The one who is placing his hands upon the head of this sacrifice is confessing the sins, symbolically transferring those sins away from the one who has sinned to the sacrifice. And that's what the high priest does on the Day of Atonement. 
taking the second goat in view of the whole nation, placing his hands upon the head of the scapegoat, confessing the sins of the people, transferring the sins of the whole nation through himself, the high priest, to this sacrifice. But then rather than slaughtering this scapegoat, the scapegoat is led out away from the assembly. And where does the scapegoat go? Into the wilderness. Is led away from the camp, outside the camp, bearing the sins of the people away from the presence of God. Taking them away. Out into the wilderness. What happens to a goat out in the wilderness? You ever see Jurassic Park? See the movie Jurassic Park? Remember what, remember what they, they had that little goat that was sort of hooked up in that cage so that the, that big, awful, carnivorous beast could consume that poor, helpless little goat? What happens to a goat out in the wilderness? That's where the jackals live. That's where the leopards live. That goat will not survive. And the thing that doesn't survive symbolically when the goat is consumed is the sin of the people. It doesn't survive. It goes away out into the wilderness and it stays there forever. You see what God is doing on the Day of Atonement. He's describing for the people how He is going to resolve the tension between His disposition, His inclination to be loving and merciful, to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but this other inclination and disposition in his soul, in his heart, in his being, at the core of who he is to be just, who punishes sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. You see it in Psalm 22. You see if you're by God's grace through the, through the decades and through the centuries, if you're, if you're sort of piecing all of this thing together, by the time you get to Psalm 22, which is the psalm from which that statement that Jesus made upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm from which that statement comes is Psalm 22. In fact, it's the first line of Psalm 22. If you've been sort of piecing this thing together and you're there at the cross and you hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You get another little piece of the puzzle. You get a little bit clearer focus on what God is doing. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And then later in the psalm, there is this incredible description, this remarkable description of a crucifixion. Verse 16, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare. They gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is another little piece that God fits into this puzzle as He pieces together this picture of the resolution 
of this tension between his disposition, his inclination to be loving, to be merciful, to forgive iniquity and sin, and the necessity of his being just. So it all then comes to fruition at the cross. Matthew 27, verses 45 and following. Uh, What happens at the cross? Well, what happens at the cross uh, is that God does this remarkable thing, fulfilling, fulfilling, finally, so that it never has to be repeated again. What Israel saw depicted when the high priest took the scapegoat and confessed the sins of the people, transferring the sins of the people through the high priest onto this scapegoat that would be borne away out into the wilderness where he would die and where the sin of the people would die with him. That's what happens on the cross. God the Father transfers the sin of his people to the high priest who is both the high priest offering the sacrifice and is himself the sacrifice being offered. And when he dies, the sin of his people dies with him. It's gone. Paul in 2 Corinthians, I think I may have mentioned this passage when I was um, candidating here as my favorite passage. There's one verse that I could have. You know, you throw me in prison. I heard somebody, maybe an R.C. Sproul said this 20 years ago. He said, you know, if I could have one verse, I'd take this verse. If I could have one book, I'd take one book. If I could have one paragraph, I'd take... If I could have one verse, take one verse with me to prison, it would be 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus, the innocent, spotless, blemish-free Lamb of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the, here's the word. Here's the biblical word. Here's the theological word. It's a word you need to have in your vocabulary. It's the word imputation. It means to credit to somebody's account. Okay? It's a biblical word. It means to credit to, somebody, to somebody's account. What did God do on the cross? I, I mean, I could go around the room and call you by name. And say, what God did at the cross was take Mike's sin, take Barb's sin, take Glenn's sin, take Brad's sin, take Ann's sin. Not just people on the left-hand side of the room, but people on the right-hand side of the room. Take Laura's sin, takes Jim's sin. He takes it away from you. He takes it away from you. It's no longer yours. And he transfers it to the spotless, blameless, blemish-free Lamb of God. And the spotless, blameless, blemish-free Lamb of God bears that sin out into the wilderness and in the wilderness, suspended between heaven and earth in a wilderness place, abandoned, left alone. He suffers and he dies. And when he dies, your sin dies with him. We, I'm not lobbying for anything here, okay? Again, we're getting to know each other. 
But we do communion. At, or we did communion at our church in Orlando um, in, a, in a, a way that's unique to Presbyterians. Let me put, put it that way. We would invite people to come forward, and the pastors and elders would serve individuals and families the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And I, I have to tell you, it, it, it has become one of the most meaningful pastoral experiences of my life to hand the bread or the cup to a sinner and to say, do you know what Christ did at the cross? He stripped you naked. He stripped you clean of all of your sin. He disrobed you of all of your unrighteousness. He took it away from you. And he robed Christ in your unrighteousness, in your sin. He took it away from you and he gave it to him. And Christ became the loathsome, despicable, reprehensible, sin-bearing sacrifice that the Old Testament prepares us for. And having stripped you naked, He dressed you in the righteousness of Christ. He's taken your clothing away from you and He's given you the royal robes of a prince, a princess, never to be disrobed again. Now, I wouldn't say all of that at communion, but I'd summarize it, try to distill it down to a couple of very, very penetrating, I hope, and encouraging sentences. That's what God did in the cross. He took it away from you. When the scapegoat went into the wilderness, he took the sin of the people with him And when the scapegoat died in the wilderness, the sin of the people died with the scapegoat, never to come back again. And so the thing that created the separation, that created the division, the thing that produced the tension between God's disposition to be loving and forgiving, uh, to, to be merciful and compassionate, and the necessity in him of being just, that thing is gone because of the cross. It is the cross that resolves that tension. It is the the cross now that says to you, this is what Luther used to... to, I mean, he wrote a commentary um, on Paul's letter to the Galatians. We studied it in our small group up up in Orlando. And one guy said he just keeps saying, saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again doesn't matter what verse it is from Galatians. He's just saying the same thing over and over and over again. Because of the cross, you can be at peace at the level of conscience. You can live without fear. You can believe Paul when he says, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How come? Because God resolved the tension. Because God stripped you of all of your unrighteousness, clothed Christ in it. Christ died. When he died, your sin died with him, and now you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. So at the level of conscience, there can be peace. There can be freedom. That's why people like Paul, who knew just how 
uh, unworthy he was, this one who had dishonored the name of Christ, who had killed Christ's people, who had used all of his intelligence, his giftedness, his zeal to oppose Christ, to oppose the gospel. That's why Paul found the cross to be so precious. Because by the grace of God, he came to see the cross as his salvation, his freedom, his joy, his hope. That's why those Christians in those early centuries were willing to be associated with something that was scandalous. Because by that scandal, they saw the justice of God, the wisdom of God, the glory of God, the power of God. By the cross, they were set free. Now, here's the last thing. Who killed Jesus? Who did this? If you remember um, when Mel Gibson was interviewed by Diane Sawyer, three times, Diane Sawyer said to Mel Gibson, Mel, did the Jews kill Jesus? Mel, did the Jews kill Jesus? Mel, did the Jews kill Jesus? He finally got frustrated with her and he said, Diane, don't you get it? We killed Jesus. And I just, I had one of those moments of, of lucidity. They're few and far between in my case. But as I was listening to him respond to her, I thought, no, you're both wrong. It wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus. And it wasn't us who killed Jesus. It was the father who killed his son because of his love for sinners like you. God is the one who resolved this tension. And because he resolved it in the cross, I'm a free man. I'm a free man. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you so much. I, I, I wish so much for myself and, and for all of us that the things that we've just been talking about were, were more real than they, than they are. I, I'm, I'm grateful for the little bit of reality that there is about these things in my own soul, but I, I long for more. So please um, take these things and with them, Encourage us. Encourage me. May, may each of us leave this place this evening uh, a bit more free, uh, a bit more at peace at the level of conscience. I, I don't know what's going on in the hearts and minds of your people here tonight. But what I do know is that any point of darkness, any point of unbelief, any, any idolatry, uh, any sin is not bigger than the death of Jesus upon the cross. And so I pray for anyone here who's struggling with something that they would take it to the cross and leave it there and know that in the death of Jesus, their sin died with him. Uh, And then grant them, Lord, your peace by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.